Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have a conversation about Paul and the desire for fame. Well, Scott, we made it back to the States. All right. How are you recovering from your jet lag over there? Well, the trip to Turkey, Greece, and Italy, there was a lot of airport mm. shuffling back and forth. A lot of early um, mornings. <laughs> lot, yes. That those uh, that one wake-up call was 2 a.m. and one was 3 a.m. That was Those were special. Yeah. But we got plenty of rest on the buses and planes. Um, it took us a few days, as it always does. We try to get right back into our schedule as quickly as possible. Yeah. But it took a few days before we felt pretty normal here. And we're doing just fine now. How about you? Good. Finally, I feel like just yesterday we kind of um, felt like we bounced back and um, woke up with energy, not still still dreary and <laughs> wanting to crawl back in well, bed. Well, you went so. right back to work the next day, didn't you? When I you did. Arrived? Yeah, we yeah. had to, we had some traveling that we had to to do for for family. Um but we yeah, we <laughs> we jumped right back in the swing of things. So For us, yeah. uh we love to have and when like we're going to Denmark this summer. We we try to make sure we have one day mm-hmm. back where we don't have to do anything. Yeah. So we can just sleep if we have to, run a few errands, get groceries, you know, just kind of live without having to have a lot of responsibility. And that makes a difference. But if, but when you land, if you have to start working right away, that it can be, it can be a bit hard to adjust the new schedule. But we had, a, it was a great time. You know, Chaz, I, I've never been to Pergamum or Sardis. So yeah, that I hadn't was either. fun. Mm-hmm. And, um, Driving by Philadelphia was was special, but there was nothing there. And then I love I love to go to Colossae. I like Hierapolis. Mm-hmm. Going to Laodicea, and being in the first week of people who get to get inside the Basilica from the early fourth century. Yeah, that was an honor. See, yeah, to see the baptistry, and then I got to teach inside there. I did a little bit about Sardis mm-hmm. uh, or Laodicea, and then. Uh, getting to go to Ephesus is always so special because it's such a great city to see the beauty of the place. And then, uh, Corinth is a highlight. I like to go to the Acropolis, but, um, that's a pretty far hike to (laughs) get up there if we were to. Then, uh, with, uh, one of our students, Kelly Fabian, uh, doing a little bit of a talk on the Areopagus and Mm -hmm. she's a lawyer. Mm -hmm. So it was even better. And then Corinth was just so special. And Ben uh, Davis, another one of our students, introduced us to some of the main lines of philosophical thinking that would have been very dominant in the city of Corinth. Mm-hmm. And then we flew, fly to Rome and uh, immediately take a bus down to Pompeii. And Pompeii is just so spectacular. I think that was my favorite part. It just, man, everything, the ancient world feels like it comes alive and you rock, walk right right into it in Pompeii. Yeah, I mean, if you if you put roofs on those places, mm-hmm. all of a sudden you got houses, you got a whole city. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, it Down is... to the paintings in some of the houses. <laughs> I know. You get to see the frescoes on the walls. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was Pompeii's spectacular. And then... Mm-hmm. Some time in Rome is always fun, always yeah. fun to see the Roman Forum. Mm-hmm. Um, 
unfortunately, when we were there, uh, it just seemed like about five tour groups decided to go at the same time. Yeah, it was so busy. it was pretty busy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So well, it was, for the, it was it, yeah, I totally agree. It was a, a great time. For those of you who don't know, uh, the trip we're talking about is our Masters of Arts and New Testament cohort. Part of the program is going on a footsteps of Paul and also kind of John going into some of the churches of Revelation um, tour uh, across Greece, Turkey, and, and Italy. So um, it was a blast. We cataloged some of it on Facebook for you. If you I'll include some links in the show notes uh, if you want to um, check out some of those uh, teachings that Scott mentioned, um, we have those on there. But um, yeah, it was a was a blast, and I just I don't know. I love the people too on our trip. We just had a great oh, time yeah. together. I mean, it's a good group of students who, because of this cohort experience, in mm-hmm. spite of the fact that uh, we're not together in every class, uh, it those week long intensives, along with the constant interaction on Facebook, and um, the Northern Live experience, uh, people have become close friends. Mm-hmm. And I I always felt like, okay, folks, we got to go to one more place. I know you guys want to go back to the hotel <laughs> and go swimming and go out on the city and have a good time with one another. But yeah. this isn't vacation. Right. Uh, it, it's a palpable, tactile, educational experience right. to see Ephesus, to see Laodicea, to see Colossae, to see Pompeii to see Sardis, to see those things so that we will never think in a in anything other than a more historically framed way about what those churches were like that Paul was talking about. Yeah, I so think we, the best way I've heard it explained and like getting to do an experiential trip like this is the Bible just goes from the like a black and white TV to being able to see that cultural slice and and experience the very world in which these letters were written, that these people yeah. lived. It really turns it into a high definition TV. You're start you're starting to read the Bible and it's become high definition now. So um very valuable part of the the program. And um, to not give too much of a, a sales pitch or, or plug, but if you're interested at all in this Masters of Arts and New Testament, Scott and I are going to do a Q&A session on uh, July 11th. And that's a, a Wednesday. It'll be one o'clock central time. I'll include, again, a link to uh, where you can sign up for that in the show notes if you're interested at all. But um, yeah, it was just a great time. It was a good time. So Very one of the things that really came alive, and like I said, you know, we're, we're really going to dig into and talk about today, is the this idea of fame. And I think this was something that you obviously at our different places talked a lot about in the way the fame functioned in the ancient world and in the Roman society. And this idea of cursus honorum, right? Did I say that right? That's the Latin expression, cursus honorum. Yeah, and so just kind of what that has to do when we lay that across what Paul has to say um, in some things about how especially church leaders are to handle fame and and how um, people who are following Jesus uh, really handle and and embrace that type of idea. So um, share with us a little, Scott, what is the cursus honorum? What's it all about? How do we know what we know about it? The... um in the first century, now this isn't just the first century, because I see pastors today on the cursus honorum in America. Uh, the cursus honorum is the path to glory, the path to honor, the path to celebrity, the path to fame. 
How do you become somebody significant? The end goal for significance in the Roman Empire, Greek world, was a monument commemorating your accomplishments at the end of your life. So from, the late, from about the time of Paul, there was a writer by the name of Hermogenes who wrote a textbook, a Greek textbook, that is often called Progymnosmata. And these are like uh, preliminary exercises in rhetoric, so you'll learn how to speak and write. And one of the things that, um, that young, potentially significant people, now we're talking here about males, we're talking about elite males, we're not talking about women as a rule, and we're certainly not talking as a rule about slaves. So this is a rather limited culture, but this culture infected the Pauline churches, and Paul fought and resisted it like crazy, and it I would say overall he lost. Um, this was a tough one. But a guy named Hermogenes, uh, in teaching students how to write stories about people uh, that he calls encomiastic uh, encomiums, encomia, um, and these are extended praises. So in other words, when you write someone's biography and you do what Christians have sometimes called hagiography, these are the sorts of things that you want to talk about. You want to talk about uh, their national origin. Were they Greek? Were they Roman? Uh, you want to talk about something peculiar about their birth. And everybody significant always has something weird about their birth, or at least they make it up. Uh, you talk about their education. Who was their teacher? You talk about their mind and body. And you want them to be beautiful, large, swift, and strong. So the statues that are everywhere in the Roman Empire that you can find in all the museums are perfectly sculpted bodies um, of a 30-year-old or a 25-year-old, obviously athletic and talented male. That was significant. You want to know on uh, what kind of life they were. Were they philosophers? Were they orators? Were they a general of a military? And you want to focus on their deeds. Uh, what were their great things? Their externals? Who were their relatives? Who were their friends? Who were their possessions? How many servants did they have? What kind of fortune did they have? You talk about how long they lived, the manner of their death. You even would say who killed them, because frequently significant people are killed by other significant people. And if you're killed by the most significant person, you had to be quite a threat. And then if, if after their, their death, did they, were there games held in their honor? Was there an oracle connected to the bones or the death? Did they have famous children? These are the sort, now look, think about this. This is virtually an outline for how to tell the story of a hero in the Greek world. Yeah. That is how, and that is then, when you're, you're a 16-year-old learning how to write encomiums and you're learning how to write about famous people, you are absorbing these as the virtues, these as the qualities, these as the traits you want to pursue. So this becomes a huge issue in the Roman Empire. 
The Roman Empire, in a sense, this is very important to see the nuance difference. It's not measured by wealth, but by status. And status, you can, if you have a lot of money, you probably have a lot of status. But some people of high status did not have that much money, but they had status. And status uh, brings you power. It brings you fame. It brings you honor. It brings you a monument. One of my favorite stories is that on the island of Rhodes, uh, and we spent uh, two weeks there last year, on the island of Rhodes, there were, uh, in, the, in the city, there were th- uh, 3,000 monuments erected to heroes. Now, this is not a big city. And by the end of the first century, they had so many people on the Cursus Honorum who wanted to be honored that they were scraping off names and adding subsequent names to an already existing statue and and a, a writer named Dio Chrysostom um, is laughing hilariously and ridiculing the Rhodians because some of the people whose names are on the statues didn't remotely look like that statue. And and this becomes the aim is to uh, is to have a monument, is to be famous, is to be honorable. And this this infected, as I said, the Pauline communities on a regular basis, and sometimes Paul even uh, mischievously appeals to people to pay attention to their praise and honor. Yeah, so when, this, this kind of curses a norm, the path of honor, it sounds like just a, a dog-eat-dog world. And <laughs> Very, yes, this is a good point you bring up, Chaz. It, it was very competitive. And was all and, about trying to get yourself to be the highest rung on that status ladder, um, right. which obviously is something that uh, it's ironic. And I wonder, um, you know, you look at the, the Gospels, if they're this you know, story of, of, of Jesus and it ends with him on the cross, um, yes. not so much an honorable death uh, or path of, of honor. And then you see Paul and you see all that, that he has to say, um, obviously subverts this kind of thinking uh, in more than one way, I think it's easy to say. Well, yeah. And Joseph Hellerman, a great scholar on this topic. <clears throat> says that Paul did not pursue the cursus honorum. He pursued the, course, the cursus pudorum. Who? <laughs> and uh, that, this is the path of being cursed. It's the degradation. Yeah. And so l- let me read a couple verses. And Paul says uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, what I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, I belong to Apollos, I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Now, in the history of, of interpretation of Corinthians, uh, many people have said these are three or four different theological persuasions, denominations. But uh, many scholars today have demonstrated, particularly Andrew Clark and Bruce Winter in England and Scotland, these scholars have demonstrated that these are patrons. These are big-name people. So when you're on the cursus honorum as a boy— as a young man, and you're growing up, you want to be connected to the right people. You want to be invited to the right parties. You you want to be able to walk down the street and somebody's significance, like Cicero, say, hey, Chaz, how you doing? Mm-hmm. In front of other people. Be known so, by the right people. And that's right. Make that be seen. Yep. And so 
when Paul says, uh, you know, you say you're of Cephas, these are people who are laying claim to being connected to somebody of high status that is measured by high status in the Corinthian churches. So it's not about theological differences. It is about status. And then he says this in verse 26 of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. Which is a way of saying, buddies, you had no chance on the cursus honorum. Yeah. yeah. You didn't have a ghost chance yeah. of going. You were nobody's. What does he say? But God chose what is foolish. So he's, you know, he chose what is foolish in the world to shame what is wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Weak and strong are, is the language of status and power in the Roman Empire. God chose what is low and despised, things that are not to reduce to nothing things that are so that no one could boast in the presence of God. Now, a couple comments. One, boasting was expected of people of high status. So uh, if you had accomplished a lot, you were expected to talk about it. So think Donald Trump. You know, he likes to brag about his accomplishments. That's just being Roman. That's just being Greek. And uh, and this is boasting then is is not so much... I deserve merit from God is that I have earned status in my Greek and Roman worlds. The other side of this is Paul is clearly subverting. He's not simply saying, you know, it's unfortunate, but nobody in the early church in Corinth was famous. So therefore, we're just going to have to put up with being nobodies. No, Paul is trumpeting. And that's not a pun. <laughs> Paul is gloating and boasting in low status because of why it connects him, just as you said, Chaz, it connects him to Jesus, yeah. who, though, this is the paradigm for Paul, though in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be seized. Now, it's not simply though he was there, it's because he was God. Mm -hmm. This is the translation that I like from Michael Gorman, is that he chose not to seize his status, but in two different ways, degraded his status. He became human, and he went all the way as a human to death on a cross. Mm -hmm. This becomes, for Paul, not only the paradigm of the Christian life, it becomes an intentional subversion and sabotaging of the cursus honorum, so that Paul in 2 Corinthians can spend virtually a whole chapter bragging about all the problems he's had, the persecutions, the imprisonments, the shipwrecks, and that he learned in all these situations that God's grace was sufficient. Now, here's the point I would like to make about this for our, for our audience. We, uh, Paul subverts over and over, and I developed this in a book that's coming out next year on Paul called Pastor Paul with Baker, academic, um, Paul subverts over and over the Corinthian desire for Paul to pursue status, to pursue honor in, the, in Corinth, so that they as a church will receive honor and be recognized 
as a legitimate organization and have social profile themselves. Paul intentionally subverts this. He had to subvert it because the Corinthians were infected by the Roman way of life, Mm -hmm. and Corinth was particularly proud of its Roman connections. It had been resettled uh, by Julius Caesar, I believe, and or Augustus, and, and it becomes a significant Roman colony. All right, now, the problem is that, that we have too many pastors, too many Christians, who are also infected by a desire for status and honor. It is so tempting to speak on a Sunday, to stand at the back, and have so many people pat you on the back of how great a job you're doing. And I I once heard a pastor say that every three or four weeks, the pastor should not go to the back, should sort of make himself unavailable so that people can't praise him. Now, you might be in a church where you're not going to get praised anyway. They're going to beat you up at the end of a sermon. Uh, So that's, that's, that's not a problem. But here's what the pastor said. He, he encouraged this discipline because of the temptation for pastors to preach for the congratulations and to think of the honor and glory and reputation and congratulations they'll get when the sermon is over and to let that shape what they say rather than to be faithful to the gospel and true to, true to Scripture. So he wasn't really saying you can't be pastors after your sermon, which would always, almost always be a problem. He was saying you need to know your heart. You need to know your mind. You need to know what makes you tick. If what makes you tick is the glory that comes because you're such a gifted speaker and so eloquent, and eloquence was a super-valued um, character trait in the ancient world or skill it's, it's so interesting that when Hermogenes talks about what sort of life did the person lead, he breaks it into three categories, philosopher, orator, and general. So military, politics, public speaking, and philosopher, which is thinking and teaching. So um, an orator was a very high demand and honorable profession, as it were, in the ancient world. And eloquence is that way today with us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Chaz, you and I are in the professional business of churches and ministry. I'm a professor. You're a pastor. Mm -hmm. Um, We all face this temptation. There's glory that comes with writing books and speaking sermons and having the word pastor in front of your name or professor Mm-hmm. or an office in the church. And there and it comes with it a bit of a demand that people fall in line. And there comes a point when we can see this, when someone moves into our world and is better than we are. Right. Um, how do we respond to them? Do we go after them, critique them? If we're after them all the time, um, then we are definitely infected by the curse of Sonorum. So and we, we need to learn this. Yeah, absolutely. So I have an observation and I guess a following question with that. It kind of seems that when we look at this and chal- and Paul's subverting of this cursus and norum idea and path of honor, um, it 
it, it forces us, and what he was hoping to do, especially to the Corinthian church and other churches that he was writing to, was to get them to see the source of which their identity was. Um, because heart issues are identity issues. And when we um, put our identity and allow ourselves rather to be identified by our Savior, our King Jesus, um, his path was one of the of the cross and of self-subverting himself and giving himself away and of service. And um, and if we let ourselves be identified by anything other than that, then we're easily going to give away that identity, even to somebody who we think might be um, honorable, like a, you know, a pastor or other good leaders or whatever. It's about whether we are uh, a church member, uh, part of the congregation, or leaders within the church. Our identity first has to come to Jesus. And then as church leaders, I think that other layer is, um, man, we need, to, we need to see ourselves not as the the privilege that we have as being pastors because of our, our leadership role. But we're simply, I, I like how one of my friends uh, identifies his title as a, as a pastor is he's just a lead follower of Jesus. Yeah, I may be the one in front. I may be the one um, who, who gets to, to do sermons and that. But at the end of the day, I'm just a follower of Jesus like you. And that's where we as our whole community gets our identity. So I guess my question would be then, with with this in mind, and with the the reality that sometimes, um, you know, we're talking about being a servant and subverting ourselves. Can one still strive for excellence uh, without falling into the 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 problem and I, I guess really bad place that Paul is is challenging his audience to about the cursus and norm? Uh, yes. I think there's no question that it can it can be done, and Jesus is the perfect example. Yeah. And uh, I wouldn't say that Paul always did it or Peter always did it. So I, I would say this. Yes, it can be done. No, it won't be done perfectly. The critical factor is for us to have enough self-awareness to recognize our desire for fame and honor. Yeah. All right, now, I when I first started blogging, I was unaware of some a development that had happened in the church that just happened, and I wasn't paying it close enough attention. I was I was writing on the on the blog about Jesus and everything, and people would write me and say, "Why don't you ever do anything about leadership?" And I remember thinking to myself, "Leadership? I'm interested in followership. Mm, yeah. I'm interested in people following Jesus. I mean." And then I began to pay attention, and there is an entire culture that developed. And Bill Hybels, uh, ironically right now, um, was at the very heart of this shift toward pastors being leaders Mm -hmm. and toward the adoption of business leadership categories and principles into the church so that we began to develop a culture of leadership. All right, I believe that there's something very important here, and uh, we've had, I've had conversations with the president, Northern Bill Shield, about this very topic. Our pastors who get into churches also need to be leaders, mm-hmm. but sometimes leadership gets divorced from followership so mm-hmm. much that the pastor no longer sees herself or himself as as a follower of Jesus but as an alter ego of Jesus in that church. 
That's a big mistake. Right. That's the curse of Sonorum again. That's the infection of power and celebrity and fame and honor. So I believe that what we need to do is become aware, and I believe we need to develop um, conscious, intentional categories or roadblocks or, uh, let's say, institutional um, programs, developments, groups of people who will have power that can check our power so that no one has absolute power and that no one can be seen as the celebrity. It is important for pastors who are particularly good preachers to share the pulpit with others Mm -hmm. enough to knock them off their perch and pedestal. Mm -hmm. So maybe the best preachers need to get off the platform the most often. Mm -hmm and need the church to be influenced by others. This is one of the problems with megachurches, and that is they are built on, the, on a personality who is obviously extraordinarily gifted, right. almost all of them males. And these, these gifted individuals create such a powerful culture connected to who they are that when it comes time for them to retire, the churches go through a crisis. Mm-hmm. How can that person be replaced? Well, mm-hmm. if the culture is completely shaped by one person, that person can't be replaced. Right. It will have to form a different culture. But if the pastor recognizes the cursus sonorum temptation in himself or herself and shares the pulpit and creates alternative cultures within the church that check the power and the celebrity status— then over time, uh, that pastor's cursus sonorum will be blunted, and that pastor's um, culture will not be the only one, and there will be a check on this sort of thing, and the transition can be easier. Well, I, I went on and on on that more than you may have asked. No, I think that's good, and I, I think you know it goes back to the fact that at the end of the day, who's building the church? Is it yeah. our job as pastors? Is it the congregation's job as the people? Is it whose job is it to build the church? And Jesus is pretty clear that he yeah. will build his church. And, right. and that is his job. That's his responsibility. And it's not up to us. And when we make it more about ourselves than about Jesus, then we cease to be following Jesus in that way and what in the work that he wants to do through us, through his spirit. And um, when we make sure our hearts are in such a place that it is not our name who gets the credit, but it's Jesus, the church is, that's the only way the church is going to be at a healthy place. And uh, I know for me, one challenging prayer that I have heard and that I, it is tough to pray, but, uh, (laughs) but when I do, I am in the best place uh, spiritually to, to, to be healthy and to not be allow myself to to get um, carried away with the curses of Norum is to pray. God, may I be the the best pastor that I possibly can be. May I be the best preacher that I can possibly be, and please make all of my peers better than me. 
and yeah. and that that's a subversive prayer and it's just it's just to say hey i want my church to be the best possible church that it can be i'm going to strive for excellence cuz i think that's what god desires um but my prayer is that everybody be better than me and <laughs> and that's that's tough that's to good. do especially cuz i'm 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 a pretty naturally competitive person but um i think we that's get good. to that that spirit of i think it was cs lewis who said humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less and, um, and less often. And, and what comes to mind is the things that are important and the transformed life and mind that, that God has for us. Yeah, that's very good. I like that. Very good. Yeah. So, all right, well, we're kind of, you know, running short on time here and talked about a lot of things. Um, anything else we need to know on the, the cursus and norm, or you would like to uh, send everybody away with today? Well, this is just a sketch, yeah. and um, there's some really good things written on this. I want to draw people's attention to it when my book comes out in uh, next spring or winter uh, on Pastor Paul. But I, I think the key thing, Chaz, is that each of us recognizes the temptation and that we intentionally subvert the temptations to power, celebrity, fame, and honor. All right. Yeah, very well said. So, and that was uh, what, like, we always bring it back to this idea and this application of Paul's challenge was central to the kingdom taking root because it's kind of the heartbeat of the kingdom in following Jesus in this way. So, That's we hope right. this we hope this has been helpful as you wrap your mind around how the kingdom's taking root in your context. And I'll include some of those, uh, like I said earlier at the beginning, um, the the links to the different Facebook videos and some of the other resources that we we've mentioned in our episode in the show notes. So please make sure to check that out um, and subscribe. If you've never done that, if you're joining us maybe for the first time, we'd love to have you as a regular listener. And wherever you get your podcast, you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, um, Please take a chance to subscribe and review us. Let us know, you know, what you think, what, what you find valuable. Um, if there's anything you, you'd love to hear, we, we'd love to be able to, to include that and have conversations about that. So thanks again for joining us. And we look forward to be with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. <laughs>